If you're looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com slash equity. Hello and welcome back to Equity. I am TechCrunch's Kate Clark and this is the podcast where we talk about venture capital. I am here this week with my co-host Alex Wilhelm, the editor-in-chief of Crunchbase News. Alex, how's it going? I am. I'm very good. It's good to be back in the new TC studio. Our producer's beard is looking quite fit. And uh, honestly, it's been a lovely week in San Francisco. So hard to complain. And you are getting ready for a little vacation. Yes. I will not be on the next two weeks of equity, uh, which is, I think, the longest break I've had since the show began, I think. Um, I'm going off to get hitched. So I'm going to depart from the internets. Uh, I'm even going to try to delete Twitter from my phone. You are not. I, I've promised my therapist. So we're, we're, that's basically a contract. Um, well, so I'm going to try to be offline, like actually offline. Good for you. Thank you. I'll believe it when I see it. Um, True facts. I'm sad we're not going to have you for two weeks. I'm also really excited for you because getting married is awesome. And congratulations. Uh, well, I mean, like, you know, don't jinx it. Nine days, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but you just got back from apparently the, the, the Southwest you were down in Arizona, I think. What was going on down there? Yeah, I went to a conference in Scottsdale, Arizona, which is not somewhere I've ever been um, before, but also never for a conference. It was definitely an interesting choice. It, uh, it was where they hosted Recode's Code Conference, which is an annual, very exclusive conference that um, kind of, I learned, it doesn't necessarily have a theme other than tech, I guess, intersection of tech, politics, media, things like that. So it's very general. It brings together all the thought leaders, um, some of the biggest names in tech, some of the biggest names in politics, media. Um, and this was the D all things digital conference back when going back in time, it was it Kara Swisher was part of that. And that was at the times or the journal. And then it was spun out into Rico and then they took it over and now it's still going on in that form. Exactly. So it's been going on a long time and this was my first year going. And I talked to, you know, a bunch of people there who've been going for years um, and they all had really great things to say about it, I think, because. Rico does a really good job of keeping the conference really efficient. They only really bring to get together people who have important things to say about the state of technology today. But I also heard this was disappointing in terms of um, the lineup. And I, you know, it was a great lineup. It had the CEO of YouTube. Susan Wojcicki. Right. It had, you know, the CEO of Medium. It had um, Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams from the Georgian political scene. Yeah, exactly. But last year they had Dara from Uber. They had Brian Chesky of Airbnb and they had Evan Spiegel of Snap. So I think people were... I think Stacey Abrams over those three. Well, yes, certainly. I think uh, perhaps last year generated a little more headlines than this year. Oh, you mean from just a sheer newsworthiness perspective? Yeah. Um, so th- the main news that came out of it was there was a great panel between the YouTube CEO and Peter Kafka of Recode in which he kind of nailed her for all the controversy over hate speech and content moderation. And she seemed shockingly unprepared to answer any questions to the point that like, I think everyone in the audience was just like, how could a CEO not have responses prepared for these questions, which she should have absolutely been expecting. It was really interesting to see. I mean, points were not being media trained to the point of having nothing to say at all, but I think also having some sort of idea of how to respond to the obviously impending questions is, is good. This came up a little bit on uh, This Week in Tech, uh, Leo Laporte's tech show this weekend that I was on, and we tried to parse the difference between platforms and publishers, and if you have a community guidelines, if you don't enforce it, where does that put you? And YouTube has really put itself in a place of essentially nowhere to win, and I'm just very glad I'm not in charge of that company. Yes, I completely agree. I would never want the responsibility of making decisions like that. But, you know, he asked her something at the end of the interview, like, 
have you thought about the possibility of separating from Google? Like, will YouTube spin out from Google? And she said? She said, she was very flustered, and she said, I haven't really thought about that. I've had a really busy week. Something along those lines. Which is, at once, a bad response and a partial response, I mean... It's a pretty bizarre response. Everyone was like, "How? What?" And I mean, that, like I wrote down here on our script, like we there were a lot of really interesting key themes, and namely um, separating big tech, so separating Google from YouTube, separating Facebook from Instagram, things like that. Um, and the other representatives, like Adam Masseri, head of Instagram, you know, he was prepared with a much more seemingly authentic response, something along the lines of, "It would make my job way easier if we separated, but like we shouldn't because that would be dumb." And you know, it kind of outlining why it would actually be worse for their businesses, at least in his biased opinion. I mean, I'm not surprised that the Facebook war machine of its PR department uh, prepped Missouri well, but I'm just, I'm shocked that Google's own didn't prep Wojcicki. I mean, these companies tend to have very well-oiled, well-heeled, and well-financed divisions that help you prep for things like this. This is why CEOs don't usually say things that are eye-catching if they don't mean to, because they're prepared. Yeah, so I think, you know, my key takeaway from this conference was just, you know, this this started as something that was very much promoting and the innovation going on in technology. And I think today it's just highlighting the failures of technology and, and bringing more attention to the tech lash, you know, the, the concept, the, the backlash against Silicon Valley. And just interesting to see that play out across, um, you know, it's it's now headlines all the time, but also these conferences have just a completely different feeling than they probably did. I mean, I don't know. I wasn't covering tech a decade ago, but I imagine it was just a lot different. So on that on that point, uh, Martin Bryant, uh, formerly of The Next Web, my old uh, publication that I used to write for, wrote a piece, gosh, two months ago, and he says, I miss the days when we were really excited about tech. Because if you go back to like the early days of South by Southwest when tech was still kind of coming up, like there was like you know who's going to be the big breakout app of South by? And people were looking for the next thing. They were excited about it. It was, it was a moment in which the upstart was the cool thing. Now incumbency and the power and the wealth that come with that have been celebrated for so long. Now we're seeing the response to that, the tech lash. It's not pretty. It's not going to stop soon. But it is. You're correct. I think a sea change. Right, and it goes back to the conversation we had two weeks ago about the way the tech press covers tech. And, you know, I think you made a great point back in that episode, just like we are perhaps often negative in our coverage, but perhaps we should be a lot more negative in our coverage. And negative is not necessarily the right word, but just finding, um, you know, critiquing when critiquing is appropriate. And I don't want to go down this rabbit hole. But yeah, I mean, it's the times have changed and we're not, you know, looking at technology with rose colored glasses the way we once were. Yeah. I mean, I think now we understand when these platforms get to the size they are, the responsibilities change. It's no longer the plucky Harvard dropout. It's Mark Zuckerberg and his iron grip on a multi-billion dollar empire. So so uh, let's transition into the news of the week. Yes. Um, this week was crazy for M&A activity, as I think has been the last month. I mean, what, so there was there was that multi-billion dollar deal of Looker. Mm-hmm. There was another multi-billion dollar deal of something. I don't remember. Mm, yes, that one. Yes. And then there's been all, you know, there's been smaller deals going on just right and left. And there were two this week. The first we're going to talk about is the Fortnite, well, the Epic <laughs> the Epic Games acquisition of House Party. Yes. Uh, I am in charge of this one because I've played Fortnite, I think, about three times. I played I, once. Oh, you did play once. Yeah. All right, good. Chris? Nope, the producer hasn't played. So it's an average of 2.5 games a piece, give or take. Uh, not impressive team. Um, okay, so Epic Games owns Fortnite. Epic Games also, if I recall correctly, has a PC store in which they sell games a bit similar to Steam. And there's questions about platform lock-in. And so there's a big kind of like battle going on in gaming, making this a very interesting space, not just because of uh, Fortnite as a cultural phenomenon. Now, Epic Games has bought a thing called House Party, which is a, I'm going to throw some words together, Teen-focused group video chatting application. Have you used it? I've, I'm not a teen, so no. 
I've I've never used it either, but I knew I know people that have used it that are not teens. Oh, so. maybe I'm maybe I'm undershooting the. I think it's more a millennial, maybe a millennial and Gen Z. App. Okay, fair enough. Um, it looks really cool. I was researching before the show. It actually looks great. Uh, if I had three other friends to call, I would actually use it, but I only have two. Um, but the whole point here is what people don't get about Fortnite often is that it is building um, a social fabric that isn't just about a game. People, uh, especially younger gamers, use Fortnite as a social place to hang out. It's where they go to chit-chat. And yes, some gaming will happen in the conversation, but akin to a poker game, if you're not playing too seriously, it's a way to get together and talk. House Party, with its focus on group communication, a younger-ish demographic, fits well into that, but it is a bit of a right turn in a product sense, making this deal quite interesting. Now, um, I don't think it was the world's largest deal, you know, I don't think it was huge. Uh, House Party had raised just over $70 million in its life as a private company, uh, which is a lot, but also not SoftBank money. So, it, you know, that's the scale. Yeah, apparently um, they had 35 million users, but they've actually not had really much user growth in the last couple of years. So Digiday was reporting that the acquisition actually came at kind of a troublesome time for House Party. I hadn't heard a ton about it in the last couple of years, so that, that makes sense to me. But like as you just explained, given the social nature of both companies, it does seem like a good match. Though I am going to be curious, well, I will be curious to see just exactly how um, Epic rolls in House Party, um, whether it integrates the tool or what. I think for now, going to continue operating just as as it has been. Yeah, so to me, there's two things that stick out about this deal. One, that Epic Games is buying this other company, which must have cost at least some money. And two, that we're seeing gaming companies um, try to build a vertical stack. And I think this is now going to be like a platform, games, and a way to communicate both probably during and after games. Fortnite also has an in-game uh, chat functionality with voice, but I think most people use... Um, Discord, which is another very popular platform in gaming. It, it goes to show, the second point, how, how gaming is far from now a cottage industry that is secluded on its own. And that's been true for some time, but I think this goes to show exactly how true it is. And, you know, I think it's still easy for people to dismiss gaming and, and gamers as a youthful kind of waste of time. But I think it, that underestimates the, the cultural power there. And this is a good part uh, kind of pointing in that direction. Yeah. And just a reminder, Epic Games raised $1.25 billion. Uh, oh, what it. was that, like eight, eight months ago, maybe? I think end of 2018. So much money. Right. So I think they, they had plenty of money making an acquisition, you know, putting, investing that money somewhere is not a bad call. No, especially if you you get to bring in several dozen million people to your world, mm -hmm. you can then promote your games to them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it makes a lot of sense. It's cool. Um, I'm not going to stop playing Apex Legends, but Fortnite, there you go. It's a whole thing. Cool. Hey, everyone. Don't forget, this episode is brought to you by Shares Post. Uh, now, we can confirm something that we talked about last week uh, and also point out that we were only partially right about something else inside the deal. So Bird has bought Scoot. Bird has confirmed that they are acquiring Scoot. They will not say how much they're paying for Scoot, which is not surprising. But the Wall Street Journal reported, and um, I was able to confirm with some sources that they are paying uh, less than $25 million. Less than $25 million. Yes, sub, sub $25 million. So that's bad for Scoot and its investors. That's good for Bird because that's a very cheap acquisition. The reason that that's bad for Scoot is that you know they'd raised somewhere around $40 million and they had been valued at $71 million with their last round, which hadn't they hadn't raised for several years. So uh, you know, based on my reporting and existing reports and also just conjecture, they, uh, they were having a, a really hard time raising capital because they're a small company. They don't have a ton of scooters. You know, they can't compete with Bird or Lime unless they were to raise several hundred billion dollars. And there's already these two key dominant players here in the U.S., several others abroad. There was just no way, really, that there was there was just no reality in which Scoot was going to emerge as a 
able to compete with those. So they were not in a good spot. They were in a really tough spot. And selling a bird was their, the best outcome that they could have had. Yeah, they're going to essentially convert scoot shares into bird shares. Probably this is probably, I presume, mostly stock deal. Mm-hmm. I don't know that, but it's a guess. And uh, they're going to make a wager on one of the two biggest players in America. And I don't really have an opinion on bird versus line, but one of them is going to do better than the other. So take a bet. If you know it's not going to be you, at least throw your lot in a place where it might win. Right. Um, birds investors certainly think it's going to you know triple in value in a very you know next couple of years. We'll see. I also don't have an opinion. Branding wise, I feel like a slight. Uh, uh, favor toward Lime, but I don't really. Sure, I mean, sure. You know. Well, Lime just changed its CEO out, if I recall correctly. I did, yeah. A couple, well, maybe a month ago. About a month yeah, ago? Yeah, so, but they switched to another co-founder, so that's... Not the world's biggest deal. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Often exactly. in startups, people will swap out founders when one wants to either do something else or gets outscaled by the business. That's exactly. That's not a sin. Some people are better at early stage versus late. Precisely what happened in that case. Um, the other founder had a lot of more experience kind of at the growth stage. I think he had worked at Tencent for a while. So yes. that they were like, that's maybe time to swap. Yeah, and... Not a, not a bad sign by itself. Coupled with other things, it can be a sign of negative problems to right, the company. Right. But I think in this case, they were just making a smart move. So, but uh, what were you saying earlier about us getting something wrong? What did we get wrong about? Oh, good? we were joking or, or riffing that it was probably them in an attempt to buy access to the SF market. When in reality, uh, the way this works out with the city, if I recall properly, uh, they cannot rebrand all the scoot scooters as bird here instantly which was my guess of why this, they were doing this instead they can operate scoot scooters in san francisco if they don't rebrand them and treat them as a distinct company is that correct yeah so from what i know that sfmta or that you know the organization that kind of handles this stuff um was smart enough to say to have some sort of clause that was like if there's a change in ownership you basically can't do that so i mean it makes sense because i think they maybe had the foresight to you know, think uh, there could be some acquisition, there could be some consolidation. Um, so as much as people did like to report that this deal was a way for Bird to get in, it doesn't really seem that way. I mean, sure, Scoot will still be here. Scoot's going to be in. Bird's going to own them. But I saw a man on a Scoot today. So and I see Scoots, the little um, electric ones all the time. Right. So. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm surprised the company didn't do better. But OK, let's move on. Um, we are going to run through a couple of big funding uh, rounds or just interesting ones that caught our eye. So in rapid-fire fashion, BetterUp raised $103 million. Reality Engines picked up five and a quarter in a seed round. Uh, similarly, Tendered picked up $5.8 million in a seed, and that's T-E-N-D-E-R-D. Simpo, $4.5 million seed. Going to the larger side against Gravity, picked up a $24 million round, proving that VR might not be dead, and we have a quote for you. Against Gravity focuses on dynamic gameplay modes where the emphasis is on user interactions as opposed to graphic fidelity. If anyone knows what that means, please let us know. I actually have a guess, which is that it's more focused on how you uh, actually touch and play with the games as opposed to making things that are gorgeous and super, um, probably, when you fall into something, um, not illuminating, not illustrative. uh, Immersive. 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 That's why we have Chris here in the room. Uh, <laughs> as opposed to deeply immersive and, and gorgeous visuals, you can probably do more of that on a high-end gaming PC than you can on a VR headset. Um, but I thought VR had died, and I was wrong. So here we it are. Seems like, it seems like people think VR is dead, yet continues to raise venture capital. So maybe we should do an episode on that someday. Um, uh, talk to me in early July. I'm around. All right. Uh, moving on. Symphony raised uh, $165 million at a $1.4 billion valuation, and this caught our eye due to an impending direct listing. Kate, what's going on? So Symphony is another messaging app. So I think we're seeing kind of the rise of Slack um, copycats. You know, this is more focused on a specific sector. But yeah, we're seeing the rise of um, Slack uh, competitors, copycats, as we observe Slack's sky high success. Yeah. 
Other names in that space that have come and gone, um, Convo, to some extent, was, was bigger back in the day. Uh, Yammer was subsumed into Microsoft. Campfire was part of the, uh, the other group's apps. There's been a lot of players here, but this is a lot of money. There must be some traction. And um, why does it have to be only Slack and Microsoft Teams? Why not three? So, uh, And then finally, Local Globe has put together uh, two quick funds, a $115 million seed stage uh, fund and a larger $180 million opportunity fund. And I highlight that because opportunity funds in 2019 tend to be a billion dollars. Uh, it's kind of fun to see one on the smaller side, a bit more tactical. And there was another big IPO this week. So CrowdStrike, a cybersecurity company that focuses on endpoint protection software uh, to prevent breaches, uh, had a massively successful IPO. Yes. It was huge. It was up uh, 65, 70% in its first day. Yep. So it initially priced at $34 a share Tuesday night, opened Wednesday at like 65 a share, right? Yeah, give or take. Yeah. So nearly, or yeah, it, nearly double what it um, had planned. So, you know, that's what we've been seeing a lot of this, this year. Because do you remember Zoom? Zoom, what, 90% pop? I don't know. It, it was, was an astronomical pop. an insane pop. amount of money. It was. So um, I did want to share... Um, some tweets from Bill Gurley. Bill Gurley, if you're not familiar, is one of the most uh, famed venture capitalists. He runs Benchmark, which is um, one of the top firms. And he doesn't speak publicly often. So when he does, I think people listen. So he, um, he tweeted the following. CrowdStrike and other way underpriced deals are the true definition of a broken IPO. The stock was grossly underpriced by over 80% as there were 20.7 million shares sold. This delta represents 575 million that is absent from the company's coffers. Imagine if, if a CEO, CEO gave away a half a billion dollars or simply squandered it. How would that be viewed? This is similar, but it's institutionalized and therefore everyone is numb to it. And the press views a pop as a success, which is just poor financial comprehension. Can, mm -hmm. don't necessarily. Can. And I think that's the mistake people make here. They presume that if a company's value shoots higher, it was uh, overpriced uh, or underpriced, I'm sorry. The difference here is pick a story like Lyft. Lyft just went public. It had a sharp first day of pop, if I recall correctly. And now it's worth far less than its IPO price. So is that what Gurley wants? Because I, have a, I presume that CrowdStrike is now overvalued. If you look at its valuation versus its inherent business, it's a great company in a lot of ways, but I wouldn't slap a 12 or $13 billion valuation on it. Um, I agree with Bill Gurley that these IPOs have been underpriced. Um, but I don't, I, again, I don't like what he's, what he's saying about um, the way that we cover IPO pops. I mean, the, way, the reason we're covering them is because they're happening and they're worth reporting on. But it's not because, it's not because we're saying, um, wow, this company is so successful. Look at this. Like, I mean, we all, we all expected Uber to have an IPO pop. It didn't. Like, the... We, I think at the end of the day, we're all aware that it's long term that matters more. You know, it's performance over a year versus two days. But again, this, these are events that are happening and they're events we're covering. I mean, I think we're often kind of misunderstanding where the public market is from a smaller investor perspective. Because when you do an IPO, you're talking to people that are going to buy big blocks of shares in your offering when you sell your book on your roadshow, to use the terms. Um, but that doesn't mean that the market itself is going to agree with that. I mean, like some companies have struggled to get their IPOs put together and then seen dramatic uh, pops afterwards. But, you know, it, it, it's tough. I, I don't think that we should throw away the baby with the bathwater, to use cliche in this case. But I do agree that some IPOs have been mispriced. CrowdStrike, you have to argue that it's worth 12 or $13 billion at its current level of performance. I mean, it's growing roughly over 100% over year over year, give or take, for the last, I think, two, two years. It is showing declining losses. It's a very attractive business. But 
I don't know. It's it's now at a very high revenue multiple, and I don't think that's going to be sustainable if it shows even a blip in its growth pattern. Well, you know, IPOs are funding events for companies, and the reason people complete IPOs is to raise money. And I think you know another point Gurley made is that. Um, in underpricing so significantly, CrowdStrike lost out on several hundred million dollars that it could be using to invest in itself. So I think that's also, um, you know, a really important point here is that by underpricing these IPOs and not understanding the market opportunity, which it kind of seems like is what's happening with these big, big IPOs, um, the companies are losing a bunch of bunch of cash. The Im- the implicit part of that argument is that you could have sold all the shares at uh, the open price, for example, or the, or the first day close price. Is that the case? Could you convince that many people to buy it? I think you can make a very fair argument here that it should have been priced dollars more per share, maybe even 10. But I think it's very yes. hard to say that all $575 million was left on the table. Yes, I and agree. Also, you, you take a very large PR risk, speaking against the press for a second, if your IPO falls under its IPO price. It is one of the few signals that, that the media has in between quarterly earnings to view how a company is being treated by the market and how to understand it. So Right, and that's the reason IPO pricing is so difficult and why I wouldn't want to have anything to do with it. I, I mean, there are so many risks you take in overpricing, underpricing, but I'm just saying in the cases of Zoom, in the cases of CrowdStrike, in which the stock... Um, price doubled or more than doubled on IPO day, um, there's probably opportunity to have priced it higher. I'm not saying that in either case it should have been priced at its opening price, like because of course that has a lot to do with um, opening day excitement. Um, Sometimes, who knows? There are a lot of things that can cause really big pops. So I wouldn't go as far as to say um, CrowdStrike should have priced its shares at $65 a share because that would have seemed really absurd. I don't think it would have gone out. I don't think the IPO would have happened. Um, this is an issue that we are going to talk about until we stop doing IPOs in the industry. This is like my fifth or eighth round. Yeah, I know. And I, I'm fine with that. I think it's one of those things that you want to keep talking about because it is, it is art and science to price these offerings. But I think we can come up with a rule for 2019 to understand why this happens sometimes. Uh, the market is very hungry for growth and no one's profitable, zoom aside. Uh, so when you are a company that is showing over 100% growth when you were going public year over year, and you have decreasing operating or decreasing net losses, that is the hat trick. That is what Zoom had. It was even better than that because it was profitable. CrowdStrike had that. And uh, Fiverr, which we're about to get to, also had that and had a very strong debut. So I think this is the magic formula that markets are not responding to well. That should be priced in. And maybe CrowdStrike should have gone up 20%. But I mean, again, it's simplistic to say that every dollar was lost. It is fair to say some were. And in between there lies the truth. Okay, so before we move on to Fiverr, there's still some more things we wanted to discuss about CrowdStrike. So just the basics. Um, CrowdStrike had raised nearly $500 million. It was, um, it was valued at about $3.3 billion before its IPO. Um, it raised about five rounds of venture capital. Um, as Alex mentioned, it was not profitable, but its losses are falling. Its revenue is growing quite nicely year over year. Um, and you spoke to the CEO. Yeah, I talked to the CEO, um, let's see, Wednesday, so yesterday. So companies, when they go public, they will reach out to journalists often and say, you know, hey, do you want to interview the CEO? And you're like, yeah, like, that sounds great. I'm covering the IPO. Like, why would I not want to talk to him or her? And they only give you, you know, the catches, they give you like 10 minutes. So you have about 10 minutes. <clears throat> In this case, I had 15 minutes to ask George Curtis's name like 15 questions that I had written down that I wanted answers to. So you're just like, you're like just going as fast as you can. I mean, just, just question after question after question, trying to get some interesting comments. You can read, you can read the Q and a that I um, had with him. It's on techcrunch.com. I'm trying to think, you know, what the most interesting takeaway was like he compared, he compared CrowdStrike to Salesforce. You know, he has grand ambitions for it to become, you know, the go-to cloud native platform for security. He basically said that his competitors, 
being in- incumbents like Mc- McPhee and uh, McAfee. Yes, I never pronounced that one right. Um, McAfee and Palo Alto Networks and some others. Um, he was like, well, they're they they're not able to meet their financial targets and transition to the cloud at the same time, so they're pretty much screwed, and we're not. Oh, so they're trapped data. between worlds, essentially, exactly. and they can't make the jump. It's a bit like Oracle right now trying to move to the cloud. Right, so there's a, it makes sense, and you know everything he said was very logical, and I, I understand why CrowdStrike's IPO, why, why Wall Street was so interested in CrowdStrike's IPO, definitely seems like it has a good hold on the market. Cybersecurity's hot right now. There was a, I forget who raised it, but there was a $300 million round in cybersecurity this week, along with this amazing IPO. It turns out all that data we made in the era of big data needs to be secured. Right, and actually I mentioned this in the story I wrote, but um, venture funding and cybersecurity um, hit a huge peak last year. I'm certain it's going to surpass that record this year, and I... I'm also pretty certain it'll continue to do so for the next several years. So, yeah. You know, and there actually haven't been that many cybersecurity IPOs. There's only been one other one this year. It was an Israeli company. Mm-hmm. Carbon um, Black was last year. 2018. Carbon Black, Tenable, and one other last year. But, I mean, generally, it's not it's not like enterprise software. It's like these are there are fewer, so perhaps yeah. that's why there's a lot of excitement there. Well, uh, just to throw a little more light and color on the, the awkwardness of these phone calls you do to the CEOs on yeah. IPO day, they are roughly as much fun as... Earnings day calls with CEOs or executives, oh, yeah. which you have the same 10, 15 minutes tops. And you have someone who wants to answer your questions, but whose PR team is in the room with them looking over their shoulder as they talk to you on speakerphone or whatever. And but that's the thing with almost all interviews with tech CEOs is that there's so much press. And I, I agree. Like there, the, the, really, the biggest challenge from a, from a journalist's perspective is just to get them to say something that they haven't already told everyone else. And I, I can't say that I felt like I succeeded this time around. Like I noticed, um, I read a bunch of the stories of the outlets he spoke with and everyone mentioned, like made the comparison to Salesforce. Like it, you know, he's, he, unlike Susan of YouTube, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's very well prepared and he, knew, he knows exactly what he's going to say. I only do, uh, I think, pretty much one earnings call per quarter now. It's with the, uh, the COO and co-founder of Okta, or uh, Frederick something. Um, I forget his name now. It's going to kill me. He listens to the show. And um, it's great because he's a man of huge enthusiasms. And like, so it's a great fun call. And I, we talk about the market for SaaS and I get a better feel for what's going on. It's worth my time. But he, you can tell he's he has to stay in his lane because it is a public company. Like there are rules about disclosures and things you can say. You can get, you know, an actual trouble. Absolutely. So it's it's hard to build a rapport and get something good out of these. And yet we keep doing them. So... That's journalism for you. All right, moving on. Uh, Fiverr has gone public as well. This is the company that had the relatively... Um, remember the ads that were like, if you don't sleep and only drink coffee, Fiverr. I really don't. I don't know anything about Fiverr. Oh. Am I... like? It was big in the New York subway ad scene. They were a slightly well, dystopian. I don't have much exposure to the New York subway. We were on Twitter. Well, New York people, that? I mean... New York people complain about the subway all the time. Hmm. Okay, I'll start again. Fiverr went public... It is a platform that lets people uh, buy and sell uh, short-term jobs. I believe they were for $5 back in the day. Now they're for a variety of price points. They were projected to price between $18 and $20 per share. They priced at $21, so above the range. According to some reports that I read, they were worth around $650 million uh, when they wound up uh, going public. And they were sharply higher, again, 70% or whatever it was, above their IPO price. Similar dynamics to the CrowdStrike uh, success. It had uh, revenue growth, not as strong, to be clear, but it also had uh, decreasing, I think it was net losses on a year-over-year basis. So it had the growth, it had the path to profitability, investors liked it. Um, but you know, Fiverr is not as big as CrowdStrike or as impressive as it. And to see it do this well shows there's a lot of pent-up demand for growth shares. And I, I think that goes to show that the IPO market today is, honestly, even post-Uber, pretty hot which I think surprises some people mm-hmm. who thought that Uber was indicative of a slowing IPO climate. turns out, no, oops, 
just Uber itself that was the problem. Yep. And that's that. So we are now going to move on to um, a bit of a debate, which is Chewy and uh, dual class shares. So really quickly up front, Chewy will price today. It may have priced while we're on the show, actually. It's supposed to trade tomorrow, looking between $17 and $19 per share. So expect to hear more probably from Kate next week. Um, but this brings up a pretty important thing about how companies are going public with differing number of votes uh, per share. So Kate, what's going on? Yeah, so there's been a noted increase in the number, especially technology companies that are going public with a dual class um, stock structure. So uh, for those that aren't familiar with what that is, which uh, super reasonable if you're not, because I wasn't really familiar with this concept until a few months ago, but um, it's uh, issuing dual class shares means a company can issue the public shares with little to no voting rights, while executives and VCs or insiders um, hold shares with more voting power or majority or all the voting power of a company. So CrowdStrike did this. They, um, they offered class A shares that each had one vote. Those were offered to the public. Um, internally, they offered Class B shares, and those had 10 votes each. So um, I don't know if you remember, uh, but when Snapchat went public, it was a huge debate because they gave um, the public no vo- no voting shares. Yeah, sucks. Zero votes for you. Right. And I mean, that's, of course, on a completely different extreme. But there's a really good... So I, I've been doing some research on this just because I'm interested in learning more about it. And I've found that there's not a lot of... of um, stories out there that really explain this explain the debate that like why this might not be a good thing especially for public shareholders but there's a good piece in the harvard business review and they propose um something called a sunset clause that would require companies to be able to um debut with dual class but after say say there's no set time but say five years later um they would have to remove that um structure and then um you know issue equal votes why not just start with a functional set of shares and rights and have good governance from the beginning and be answerable to your board see, and the investing public. See, I asked, I asked the CEO of CrowdStrike that because I basically was like, you know, there's debate here. People don't think this is fair. And he was like, well, I think it's fair. I think it's right. If you were a founder led company, which he is the founder of CrowdStrike, I think it's OK because founders have had the vision from the beginning. They were there. His quote was like, I was here when we were 23 slides. And like, here I am today. I'm still the CEO. I have the long term vision, whereas like. Wall Street or the public markets or shareholders, you know, they are much more fickle. They're operating under much more in a day-to-day basis, whereas a CEO, in theory, is thinking many years ahead. And so perhaps the CEO should have more control, more power over voting rights because, um, you know, he he's a bigger believer in the mission. He has the vision, blah, blah, blah. In the case of Evan Spiegel, I think, um, of Snapchat, you know, it actually didn't work out very well because he made a lot of bad decisions. And perhaps had there been, you know, equitable voting rights spread across, uh, he wouldn't have um, been able to do. Yeah, yeah. he wouldn't have been able to screw up in the way that he did. Uh, I think the founder fetish that we have from Silicon Valley is fine as a private company set up, but I think when you import it to the public markets, it's a bit of a misfit. Um, And we're watching, you know, Facebook right now, which was the example people held up of, well, you know, what Facebook without Mark, what's that? And now we're seeing some seriously large problems brew over there while he retains an iron grip on the company and you cannot do anything about it. Right. Tough. Yeah, I mean, I think, in my opinion, it feels like there's, this isn't a concept that's discussed enough. I mean, it's not new, but it is happening more often. And I think that we should draw attention to it. Um, not to say that it's wrong or bad, but just to have a nuanced conversation about the, the pros and cons of doing this, especially with no voting shares, which I think is just insane. I think it's honest. I think giving the public one vote per share and giving yourself 10 so you retain greater than 50% voting is a sop. I think it's ridiculous. Either I mean, just fly under your own flag, right? If you don't want to share any control, then don't. 
if you want to have a company with a functional governance that you know adheres to historical norms for how this stuff works, then have votes. But th- this ten versus one thing is a is a fracking farce because I can't swear on the show, so you can fill that in yourself. And if you want to look at a historical example of a company that didn't have this setup, it was Amazon, which historically thinks far ahead and has done fantastically well. It's a public company growing from, I believe, under nine-figure revenue. So the idea you can't do it is trash. The idea that it always works is wrong. And to me, it's dishonest. If you're going to sell shares and go public and float, share the voting power with your shareholders. Don't treat them like children and you like a god. You're not. Alex is getting really worked up, and but I totally agree with you, and that's why I wanted. I'm not to worked br- up. I'm angry. That's why I wanted to talk about it, though, because I think it's important. I think what you just said, um, perfectly, uh, summary is a perfect summary of why it's messed up. But I think what will the only thing I think that will really change this is to see whether these dual sto- these dual class stocks versus single class stocks perform differently on the markets, and 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 they. I mean, as far as I know, they're not, which means that people don't care. Or people don't know. I don't know. But it's 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 uh, if if a company isn't going to lose any money doing it, if they're not going to have any consequences whatsoever, they're not going to ha- be up against um, you know any negative um, feedback from shareholders. Then of course they're going to keep doing it. And like I said, it's not really talked about very much. No. Well, it, it, it's super niche, right? I mean, this is like something that you and I care about and the listeners of Equity, and we're, we're a relatively large group. I hope group. the listeners care. Yeah. If, sorry, <laughs> sorry, if everyone's turned off care. by now, no one's going to hear this part. They're like, oh, crap, it's dual class. Um, but it's a rising issue because more and more value in the public markets is trying to pretend like it's a private company, which I don't think is, is the way to go ahead. Um, what we can do, though, is do a kind of a longitudinal test of looking at companies uh, with dual class structures over time in like five years from now and see if they perform better or worse than either market comps or the market as a whole. And, and we can kind of see. We can test this out. We can take a look at it. Um, hard to do today, but I, I don't think infantilizing public companies and having godlike founder control is, is the way forward. Didn't we talk about this when we had Phil of All Turtles on? Yes. Okay. Well, that was just one of the best episodes we've ever had. Right. Everyone should go. If you haven't heard that one, it was really good. And actually, I saw him at Code. Uh, Phil Leiben. Leiben, yes. Yeah, formerly of Evernote. Right? Yep. And then he was at, And he was at General Catalyst for a hot minute, then he quit because he didn't want to do it. And now he's doing All Turtles. I think yeah. that's correct. Anyways, I think that's all for today. Yeah, I'm going to miss, I, I kind of spun that out, because the moment I say goodbye, I'm like not back for two weeks. I'm going to get like podcast withdrawal. I'm going to miss you have guys. a great wedding, and good luck not going on Twitter. Yeah, thanks. Um, I will, uh, I guess I'll talk to you in a while. <laughs> a couple <of> weeks. <laughs> All right, bye everybody, have fun. Bye. All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week.